mastering your emotions so you can be a safe space for the feminine mm, is yes. actually to me the art of masculinity so i would think it means two things to me one it's always like in the eye of the beholder so realize that it's okay to have a different view than somebody else two it's always being created and recreated uh i i think it means an openness to growth an openness to learning an openness to looking at what is masculinity in me and having curiosity about what parts are serving me and what parts maybe aren't serving me so well anymore. And so the art of masculinity is truly that. If you can master being a lion and a lamb, you've mastered masculinity. The art of masculinity to me means knowing how to gracefully dance between both the feminine flow and the structure of the masculine. This is The Art of Masculinity with your host, Johnny Elsasser. Hey everyone, today's guest is Christopher Healy. He is a former special agent with the Department of Homeland Security who has more than 15 years of experience in federal law enforcement as a top secret clearance holder, leading high performing teams in large scale multi-defendant investigations and high risk tactical operations domestically and overseas. Christopher left DHS earlier this year to focus on the personal development and coaching business that he has owned with his wife for over a decade and to be more present in the lives of his two young daughters. As a former special agent and an endurance athlete who has finished six Ironman triathlons, three ultra marathons, and dozens of other endurance races, Christopher is passionate about giving men the skills, tactics, and mindset necessary to overcome their obstacles, find the greatness within themselves, and become the first responders for their families. This is absolutely an amazing episode with my good friend, Christopher Healy. He and I are cut from similar cloths, having spent a lot of time in the federal government and knowing what life is like on both sides of the fence. So I know that you guys are going to enjoy this episode. It was a blast to have him on and we will definitely have to have him on a lot more because he has so much to give us from so many different areas of what it's like to live in today's world as a man and as a father um, in in the capacity of the the way the world is evolving. So love this episode with Chris, and I know you guys will too. I'll see you guys around the corner. All right, everyone. Welcome back to the Art of Masculinity. We have my good friend, Chris Healy, on here today. What's going on, brother? What's up, man? Glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, man. I'm really stoked to have you on. You and I had uh, some great conversations when you attended the last Wildman experience. And I'm just super, like, I'm very proud of you as somebody who stepped into a different role in his life and made the commitment to do that, um, especially coming from your background, which we'll get into. But then also the fact that you're embracing this like new aspect of your life in, in with such joy and like, energy man it's really cool to watch you right on man well i appreciate that that was uh and you know for those i don't know when this is going to air but for those who haven't done the wild man um it is just it's an awesome experience it's such a cool container to be a part of and to kind of uh see those relationships that i got to i got to make 
in October, I guess it was, um, yeah. and it continued to develop and grow over the last the last several months has been awesome. It's just um, it was exactly what I needed at that transitional point in my life when I was getting ready to walk away from my career. Yeah, brother. And you were and like you guys have created such a cool bond. Um, all the groups do. But I love your guys's crew. You guys created a really solid bond. And um, the guys there were just you guys all fit together really well. There was a lot of growth in that environment. Yeah, it was definitely a good vibe. And like, everybody kind of had, I don't, I don't know if you if you curate it this way intentionally, or if it just kind of you, you call in who you call in, but um, definitely, everybody had a, a similar I don't want to say similar aesthetic, but that's kind of the way I look at it. It's like we all kind of we're at similar points in our lives for the most part, mostly fathers, mostly guys who are kind of in, in entrepreneurship or stepping into roles in entrepreneurship or expanding in that. And so uh, it, it was a really, really, a really good group of men to be around and to have that experience to kind of um, be in a space where, uh, you know, after years of being in kind of a, you know, an alpha uh, you know, very like type A personality kind of world where, you know, it's, uh, you know, I don't know if I can say this on the air, but it's a dick measuring contest, you know, and to like step into yeah. this, like this role where people are much more um, open to who are you and what's, you know, what's important in your life and how can I help you is a very different vibe for me. And, and it was good. It was refreshing. Um, I didn't feel like, mm -hmm. I didn't feel less than at any point. I didn't feel like I needed to like show anybody my credentials and let them know who I was. So it was a very, it was a very chill experience. And I definitely appreciated the way it, uh, the way it worked out and has continued to. Yeah, brother. And like, you have such a vast knowledge and an amazing level of experience where you ended in the government was a very high position and nobody gave a fuck about your background. Like no one <laughs> right. gave a shit. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I think you you understood given your your background and like, you know, you know, TS clearances and all those things that like come with kind of being in like a, a kind of a high speed position. And uh and what was funny to me is like a couple of guys like, you know, came up to me afterwards and they're like, man, you're not what like I expected a special agent to be. And I, I was thinking to myself, like, <laughs> I, I don't know what you expect a special agent to be. I guess it's probably what you see on television. And I can tell you that ain't it. Like right. we're, we're more like accountants than you would think. <laughs> so. <laughs> Like we we, so we we kick some doors, but I fight crime from I, I used to fight crime from behind the desk a hell of a lot more than you know than than clearing rooms. So yeah, they just think every uh, every special agent is like John Krasinski in Jack Ryan, you know, exactly. in the Amazon exactly. Prime show. They're just like, oh, that's what they do, right? No, bro, that's not. That's yeah, not that what is they do. that is one hundred. Like it's funny to me, like um, kind of the the attitude of. I think, uh, what was it with Kiefer Sutherland um, years ago? Like, I oh, uh, 24? 24, yeah. I, I think people yeah. have this, like, this idea of what, you know, the federal government is capable of and can do based on that show. And so they, they expect that, you know, crimes get solved in, in very short order. Or they watch NCIS and they're like, oh, yeah, that's what happens. Guys are going to go, you know, immediately just go and search a house. And it's like, man, have you ever written a warrant? You know how long this, this takes? You know how long it takes to get, like the AUSA to call you back or a judge to sign off on this, to get your team together, to like assemble everybody to go and do all of that. Like it doesn't happen neatly in an episode like that. It's, you know, these are months yeah. in the making. And so, uh, yeah, it cracks me up. Like guys just kind of like have this expectation based on, you know, what they see on, you know, CBS, you know, like blue Bloods, yeah. Quantico yeah. You know, or whatever. It's just, that ain't it. So, yeah. It's so good, dude. It's so true. Well, we're going to dive into all this stuff for the for the uh, community here, but I'm going to ask you your questions of the oh, manly yeah. round. You ready for it, brother? Let's go. I've been practicing. 
Uh, good, man. I love it. All right. What is your spirit animal and why? I, you know, like I've listened to a lot of episodes and I've heard a lot of like good responses and, and I keep coming back to, uh, to honey badger and, uh, and, and, <laughs> and it's, and it's because I like during my career, um, I was one of those round, round pegs in the square hole. Um, like I did not, I, I am, I am not good at taking instruction. I'm not good at, uh, at being told what to do. I'm very independent. And so, um, you know, I tended to do things that I knew were right and, uh, and didn't really give a damn about the consequences of those decisions. And so, uh, mm-hmm. I was, I was extremely well-respected and well-liked by my peers, but but roundly disliked by people at my headquarters. And, uh, and I just, uh, more than once was referred to as a honey badger. And so I, I wear it with pride. <laughs> oh, I love that. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. And it's so funny. That's probably why you and I resonate too with one another so well, cause that's how I am in yeah. my government job. It's like, I don't, I'll do what's right. And I don't give a fuck about the consequences. So that's like- it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I have no interest. I have uh, no interest whatsoever in the uh, in in the the office politics or you know or, or no. any of that stuff. It was like, this is how it's going to be, uh, you know. And so, <laughs> I, and, and you know, you take a lot of wind out of people's sails when they call and they want to chew you out about like, why'd you do this or why'd you do that? And you're like, oh, you should read this thing we've got. It's called the Special Agent Handbook. It, uh, it gives you all the answers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, oh, that's so good, brother. Oh. Good. And I love the honey badger. Do you ever watch that video back in the day? Um, Hell yeah. On, like, YouTube. Dude, we used to watch it so much oh, overseas. God. It was hilarious. Honey badger don't care. Like, Yeah, honey badger uh, don't give a shit. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's it, man. That's me. That is, that is me. And that is, oh, uh, that that is, so good. That is, that is one of the, the prime reasons why I've, I've moved into, uh, into entrepreneurship is, uh, is, is I, was, I was a honey badger for sure. I love that, dude. That fits you so well. Oh man. All right. Your next question. What song, whenever you hear it, no matter where you are on the planet, do you have to just bust out singing along with? Uh, I, I can't, I can't break it down to one song, but if I had to break it down to one song, it's probably Franklin Sour by the Grateful Dead. I'm, I'm a huge deadhead and, uh, probably 99% of the time, if you're in a truck with me, um, I've got the, the serious, uh, Grateful Dead channel on and I'm just like jamming out to whatever concert. Uh, it happens to be playing. So, uh, but Franklin's Tower is probably, probably if you give me like 1977 spring tour and you give me like help is on the way, Slipknot into Franklin's Tower, I'm just going to be like in my own world, just like jamming out. And I don't care who's watching. I love that. You and your wife have to go over to a place called Montezuma in Costa Rica. All right. And on. it's just like, it's like a little backpacker place on the peninsula. Um, and there's a, an organic, uh, coffee restaurant there and it's like a deadhead haven. So oh, right apparently on. there's, there's like a lot of dead and it, they do open mic. So people go and play and you, they get like real musicians there too. People that are just like traveling, like real musicians, nice. but it's a pretty big, I, I guess the, there's a local community that's all like deadheads. And during the week, or during the low seasons, especially when it's not like highly traveled, they'll be there just playing freaking Grateful Dead music all the time. Uh, yeah, send me the address. I'm there. That is like, <laughs> like if, if if I had a time machine that I could like, this is another question for you. What, what would you do with the time machine? If I had a time machine, you put me on tour with the Grateful Dead spring of 77. Like I like people be like, oh, I want to go and see the Renaissance or I want to see Michelangelo play <laughs> the Chapel. I'm like, I want to see Jerry. Like, that's it. Like. <laughs> Just put me in the back of VW bus and like, that's it. I'm good. I love it. So yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. I love that. All right. 
your next question is what would your if you were a dj what would your dj name be <laughs> this this is a challenge um because like I, I don't know a lot of dj names but i'm gonna tell you like a quick story i had a i grew up in a small town in uh in maine and people who are from scarborough maine are going to catch this reference but um there was a guy who like you know how everybody like has like the the sponsorships for the little league team so you play for you know whatever like the the local mm -hmm. businesses that sponsors there was a guy who was like the only dj in southern maine and his name was jd your dj and like he sponsored like all the little league teams so what? um yeah so jd jd your dj was uh was so i would be jd your dj that would be it like that's and, i like that i'd be throwing it back to like 1987 scarborough maine that's it I like that, man. That's a, that's a really, yeah, that's a really whimsical kind of DJ and you don't hear it backwards like that. So right that's on. pretty cool. I love J that. JD, and yeah. I, I'm not JD, but JD or DJ just has a ring to it. <laughs> I, I always loved it. So yeah. <laughs> oh, I love it, man. Oh, so good. All right. Your next one is what is something in action that no matter who does it could be the coolest person on the, on the planet, no matter who does it, just would look absolutely ridiculous doing it. Um, like probably almost everything you do naked. <laughs> almost, <laughs> almost everything. Um, I, I was a Seinfeld guy. So like, there's like the whole, there's like a whole episode about bad naked. And, uh, and, yeah. and I, I think probably my wife's gonna kill me for saying this, but we like, we, we say that to each other. Like, you know, you walk into the, you know, someone's about to take a shower and like bend it over, pick something up. And you're like, that's some bad naked. Uh, so yeah. I, I don't know. I think that uh, just about anything that you do uh, in, in, in that particular uh, circumstance is, is going to be, is going to be ridiculous looking. So. Uh, yeah. Was, was that Seinfeld where they did the crouching where they were talking about <laughs> yes. how crouching naked? Yeah. <laughs> like trying so to open weird. the jar and like, yeah, <laughs> that's bad. That naked. So good. Yeah. yeah, that is, dude. That's yeah. a really good one, actually, because, yeah, normal movements don't look great when they're naked. And, no. and uh, that's really hilarious. Yeah, I remember I that had, episode. I, I, I had a professor in college who... Um, he was Canadian. So I don't know if things are different in Canada, but like he talked about like when you went to the gym, when he was like in college, uh, so this probably would have been the 70s or whatever, um, that people worked out naked. And he was like, yeah, at the gymnasium, everybody mm -hmm. worked out naked. I'm like, that is some, that's some ridiculous bad naked right there. Imagine like doing deadlifts naked or like, or like you Dude, know, like box jumps. <laughs> could you imagine being like the Romans or like everyone yeah. wants to be like, oh, the Spartans and the Romans, bro, you know, they wrestled like they naked, wrestled naked. Right? Like that's, that's like yeah. not. Yeah. yeah. You're like, bro, that's, I, I don't know that I'd want to be part of that one. Not going to lie. We, we, did not, <laughs> we, we, we have a little bit higher hygiene standard too. You got, you got to keep that in mind when you're talking about yeah. like, you know, like wrestling in the dirt with a bunch of dudes who've never taken a shower. <laughs> yeah. yeah so, right. Oh yeah. dude. So good. I love that one. That'll be one of my new favorite ones. Um, right. And your last question is if you could travel in time. So here goes your time travel. You can travel go. in time anywhere. Who any and this is regarding any well-known person. So somebody we generally mostly know. What would a or who would you prank and what would the prank be if you know what it would be? Oh gosh. Um I'm not much of a prankster, but um I would probably uh I'd want to prank uh Abraham Lincoln, I think. 
and uh, I think he'd, <laughs> you'd, you'd, and he's, he was a busy guy, so you'd have to like run up behind him real quick and just you know be like bang, you know. But um, oh, that would be Jesus. it. <laughs> that would be it for me. So just yeah, just on the save, you know, uh... or something. I don't know. Just get right, just get right in his face and just you know, be like what's up, man. Um, but yeah. no, I'm not much of a prankster. Like I, for me, like it, it's it's honestly, and, and this is not a well-known person, but my 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 nine-year-old. Like I am like, like I will tease her relentlessly. I know you've got like a niece and or, or niece or nephew. Yeah, yeah. Like I am like, I like, I don't, I, I don't I prank her, her so much. I just, I, I just mess with her. And she's just like, yeah, <laughs> I don't know. It's the best. So, yeah. No, I'm not much of a prankster, man. But I, I'm definitely, uh, I, I definitely think uh, the Abraham Lincoln. I, I, I think I probably stole that from a comedy routine that I heard somewhere. But I think, uh, I think Abraham Lincoln would be, would be a good one. That's so good, man. I love that. I love that. Well, you made it through the manly round. So we're going to dive into a little bit about where, you know, we alluded to the fact that your government and through the intro, yeah. everybody knows that you are former special, recently a former special agent recently, uh, yeah. to the Department mm -hmm. of Homeland Security. Yeah. Um, but you have a lot of experience in the federal law enforcement. And in a lot of ways, uh, that aspect of life doesn't necessarily transition well to living a normal life. Oh, hell and no. So let's, let's, uh, let's die. Let's take everybody just back a little bit and let them know kind of what was your background in, um, DHS and then kind of what was your role and what was your experience with up until now? Right on. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't know how far you want me to go back, but I got into, um, department of Homeland security, um, basically after nine 11, I was, uh, I was I was pretty inspired to serve by what happened on 9/11, and I was uh, in the past life I was an archaeologist, <clears throat> believe it or not. So um, I was actually what? working. Yeah, I didn't yeah. I didn't even know this, and you yeah. and I talked a lot. <laughs> yeah, so um, so I was uh, I had literally like 9/11 happened like the day after or, or like the day before like my birthday. So I like just I was a recent college graduate, and I had gone I um, had graduated with an anthropology degree, and I was going. Um, into archaeology and I was going back to graduate school. I intended, you know, a long time ago to become a PhD. I wanted to be like a professor of archaeology. That's that was that was my career path. And then 9-11 happened, everything changed. And um, several of my buddies went military, others went um, law enforcement. I chose law enforcement. And so um, of course, um, post 9-11, there was this like major shutdown where everything, um, you know, they're starting up the Department of Homeland Security and like reorganizing all these agencies. So it took a while to get in the door. Um, but when I first got in the door, um, I put down on my application, you could choose like three or four different duty stations you'd be willing to serve at. And so DHS had these like this new position. It was called it was called ICE, Immigration Customs Enforcement. And I was like, all right, I'm going to go I'm going to go work for ICE because those are the guys who are going to go out and grab the people who are in the country illegally who are plotting the next 9-11. Like that's where my head was. It was like these guys came to the country on visas. They overstayed. I want to stop those guys from doing that again. And so um, I put in Texas because I knew the Southwest border was like hiring a ton of people. And I was like from New England and I'd never been to Texas, but I knew that was the quickest avenue for me to get hired was to be willing to go uh, down there. So I got actually hired um, for Harlingen, Texas, which if you've ever watched the news about everything that's going on at the border, um, it's all right there. I was like on the oh, front wow. line in the Rio Grande Valley for 10 years. Um, and so I, I, you know, 2,600 miles from home, you know, packed everything I had into the back of a like 
you know, Dodge Dakota and, and drove like, you know, down to Texas and, um, you know, total fish out of water, completely different culture, completely different food, different everything, different environment, and just, you know, basically jumped right in. Um, and I spent most of my career there. I um, went from being, originally I worked for ICE and then I went uh, and became a special agent. So I kind of upgraded, went back to the academy, got some additional skill sets, uh, and then worked within DHS for our uh, internal affairs component. Um, which is the Office of Inspector General, and was a uh, special agent there uh, until until I retired. So I was there for a little over 15 years, and and I say retired. Um, most people go until they're 57 when they're mandatory for retirement. Other people do 20 years. Um, you know, I had a great opportunity to to walk away a little bit earlier because of the business that my wife and I have built. So I was able to leave after about 15 years. But um, yeah, had a lot of. Mm. A lot of wild experiences and saw some of the the world's garden spots got to travel to about 15 different countries got to you know arrest a lot of a lot of bad dudes um and was was involved in a lot of high profile cases that were um a lot of fun but caused a lot of a lot of challenges and difficulties you know at home uh just you know the the stress of being in that job yeah, isn't uh, isn't limited to yourself it you know your your family carries it as well Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely, brother. And uh, it's it's so funny that you say mandatory retirement because in the Department of State, you can just die at your fucking desk. So it's like really funny <laughs> yes. when I hear that. I'm just like, right. yeah, Department of State, they're just carrying out bodies of fucking corpses because yeah. they've been there for 70 years. And uh, you guys have mandatory retirement. So it's really funny. It, it's just like military. Like you have to be in uh, by the age of 37 so that you can retire at 57. So it's the same retirement for firemen, law enforcement, I think like air traffic controllers fall under that too um so yeah but we get this thing called like retired on active duty and i didn't want to be that guy like i i made Mm. you know some very large cases i made um i I really specialized in in large-scale multi-defendant fraud cases uh involving like transnational criminal organizations so um i i loved going after the big fish and you see those guys in your career that are like you know 20 years in um you know, 15 years in and they just kind of start mailing it in every day. And, yeah. and those are the guys you got to, you, you know, those are the people that have to have your back when you're going and taking the door, when you're going and like, you know, skull dragging some guy out of a, of a, you know, a hiding place. And I got, you know, this moat back here, who's like, you know, you know, basically, like you said, a dead body at his desk, you know, watching my yeah. sticks and uh, the, the closer or the further and deeper I got into my career, the more I began to realize, like, I don't want to be that guy. You know, I want to walk yeah. away when it's right for me and I don't need to stay and get the gold watch. I don't need to like check that box that says you did two decades on the inside. Like um, I did enough. I did I did more than enough and I, I sleep well at night and, uh, and and know that I did my part. So, yeah. Yeah, brother. Well, I just want I want to thank you for what you've done for our country and thank you for what you've done tracking down people. Um, I appreciate that. Pulling them out, brother, because a uh, huge respect for you, huge respect for the work that you've done in your now past life. Um, yes. So one of the one of the questions I want to ask you too is like kind of opening this up for men everywhere because a lot of men that listen to this are either police officers, military, you know, uh, government workers, and stuff like that. But what was like? Was there a point in time that you looked back and you were like, "Dude, the guy that I am right now, I'm not very happy with because I'm kind of surrounded by." a different mindset because the government carries that not, not really bashing on any of them, but it just really carries this different mindset of how they look at life. Was there a time that you actually were like, bro, this isn't, I don't even really feel right with who I'm showing up as right now. 
yes and no like i always i always kind of swam against the tide so um i think what you're what you're referring to uh, you see in all levels of government whether it's state local federal um it, there's a political science theory called the iron law of oligarchy and it, it states that every single organization no matter how altruistic it is at its onset eventually evolves to take care of the people at the top of the organization and mm -hmm. and it's true whether it's your local pd whether it's your county sheriff whether it's your you know your federal government um and so for me um when i reached a point in my career where i was considering whether i wanted to go on a management track or wanted to continue to, you know to chase down cases and and do the kind of work that i was passionate about um that was the, that was kind of the inflection point for me because you have to you have to buy into the culture of the agency or buy into mm -hmm. the culture of the people around you and that's not necessarily a good thing um, mm -hmm. you know, because those are people that have different concerns than, than, than you might have had when you took the oath. Um, I mean, you remember, I'm sure you stand up and you, you take the oath in front of the flag and it's, it's as proud as you're ever going to feel. Um, mm -hmm. and then you wrap yourself in that flag and you go out there and your expectation is that everybody above you in the organization has that same sort of heart in the right place. Like I'm doing this because somebody needs to be the sheepdog. And then you get into it and the further you get into it, you realize that at some point people become career driven and not driven by that, that need to serve. And so for me, um, I, I didn't like, I, I guess what I would say is what you accept becomes acceptable. And if you mm -hmm. accept that the agency that you're working for, the people that you're working for don't have the best interest of the American people in mind and aren't doing things in a way that serves and you allow that and you stay there, then you're saying that that is acceptable. And, mm -hmm. and I reached a point where I was going to work every day and I loved what I did and I loved who I served, but I resented who I worked for and who was making the decisions and making the calls. And I didn't want to live in a way that was outside of my ethics, outside of my, my code um, to advance in that job. And mm -hmm. so that was really the point for me is, is, is this is a path that I can continue down and I can be you know, successful. I can be in management. I can be this, that, and the other thing, or I can walk down this path independently, um, and and choose a different path for myself that's more aligned with who I want to be. Mm, yeah, and that's you know, uh, the the fact that you had the awareness to see that, and then made the decision that most people. I don't think a lot of people would have made your decision. I think a lot of people would have stayed in, um, g done their full thing up to retirement. And said, well, I'm so close, right? But instead, you're like, I'm honoring myself. Like, what did that feel like when you made that decision to be like, no, fuck this. I'm honoring myself first. It, it, it actually felt really good. And uh, it was probably a decision that my, my wife would have had me make a lot earlier. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I, I, here's, and you and I have talked about this. And, you know, so I'll just say like, there's, um, you get, service is a drug and you mm -hmm. get you you get hooked on it like you get hooked on any drug right and so there's the 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 next case like and i'm sure it was this way for you you know even more so downrange like you know th there's a high of like you know clearing a room and getting out of there and coming home with the same number of holes that you you left the house with um i mean th there's a high to it and, and chasing down that high uh and staying on that it's hard to walk away it's 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 mm -hmm. hard to walk away from that and so um you know, the inflection point for me was i think i started to i started to resent having to leave the house and not being there when my children were you know it was bath time when it was dinner time mm -hmm. um and i realized that at, at that point as if i'm if i'm having these misgivings 
you know, and I'm supposed to be down in some bad neighborhood in Houston at, you know, 4.30 in the morning to kick a door in and, and you know, we've got some dangerous felon who's, you know, possibly armed or, or whatever. Um, I'm not going to be the sharpest guy on the team if I if my head's not all in it, if I'm not there. And, and so um, I'm putting myself in danger. I'm putting other people in danger if I'm not fully committed to this job. And and that's when I talk about those guys who are retired on active duty. Um, yeah. that, that was it for me. It was just like, I don't want to be that guy. And, and I want to be a different person for my family. And I want to be somebody who is uh, not just a first responder, but the first responder for them, for my children, for mm. my wife. Yeah. And that's like that to me to have that awareness and, and to say, okay, I'm not, even though you're incredibly capable still, you're physically fit, you're incredibly capable. You're like, no, but my mind's not in it. And I think that's where a lot of people, they don't make that decision. They say, oh, if my body's still capable, I can phone it in. Right. And it's like, no, man, like you're, you're putting yourself still at risk because your mind's not there and your body might be able to perform, but oh, yeah. it's that, it's that one lapse that happens that you're like, fuck, and that could be good night, you know, complacency kills. Right. And, and, you know, and you find yourself, if your head's not there, if your head's somewhere else, you're, you're in the wrong, you're in the wrong line of work. Yeah. Yeah. And you said something that I really loved. You said that service, the the way that service impacts, it gives you this drive. And I think, um, as you were saying that I was thinking about this and I was like the connection I made, which, you know, going back to my services, service really actually is the way to create our purpose for us. It's almost like an easy way that we don't even have to think about it. It's like, oh, the service defines my purpose. And then that purpose becomes bigger than me. So my question to you is now that that's gone and you're starting to have that transition, how are you finding that purpose again? What are you getting back into for yourself to start to define what that looks like moving forward? Because I know that's a huge transitional struggle for a lot of people. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And, um, you know, and so like, I'm a, I'm a hard driving guy. And so like, I, I, you know, even to the last, Shocker. yeah. <laughs> yes. So even to the last day in office, right. Like <clears throat> I was still, you know, like wanted to make sure that the things that I was handing over and that I was walking away from, I wasn't just like leaving a big steam and pile on somebody's desk. It was like, Hey, you know, like this is squared away. This is what you do. This is who you call. These are your next, next steps. And so, um, you know, I didn't leave. It wasn't just like, you know, burn the bridge behind me and see you later, guys. It was like, you know, it was, it was important for me to leave things orderly. And so coming into, um, you know, we'll call it retirement, but coming into this new phase of my life, uh, there was a challenge because I immediately wanted to hit the ground running. And and my wife, God bless her, was, you know, she was aware. And actually, uh, Danny from, from Wildman, I talked to him a lot about this because he had a similar transition leaving. Uh, yeah. even, um, Firefighters. Firefighting. And, you know, it was like, hey, listen, pump the brakes, take a breath, take a couple of weeks where you just, all I need you to do is drive the kids to school in the morning and pick them up in the afternoon and, you know, weed the garden and mow the lawn and figure out what you want to do. Um, and just, just take a second to breathe. And, and that was, there was a lot of freedom in that, um, you know, and being able to kind of say, okay, there's no pressure on me right now because we have this business, we have this income, we have this stuff that, um, you know, that, that, bills are going to get paid, that we're going to keep a roof over our head. You can calm down and you you don't have to like fill that void with jumping into something with both feet right away. You can take the time to actually lean into what makes you happy. And, uh, and so that's kind of been it for me. I haven't, I haven't regretted it a second. I haven't had a single ounce of me that is like, oh gosh, I made a mistake. Um, I'm fully, fully aligned with the decision. I feel completely, completely right about it. Um, 
but it's allowed me, you know, the opportunity to lean into some things that, um, that I hadn't been able to put a lot of time into, to, to lean into mm -hmm. some of the creative side of me that, um, that, you know, law enforcement doesn't necessarily lend itself well to, and to lean into the things that make me happy, getting up early in the morning and working out and, and enjoying not being in a rush to finish that workout. Cause I got to get yeah. out the door. Um, you know, like uh. just, yeah, it's just so it's it, it it's it's been it, it it's it's been exactly what I wanted it to be. I've kind of created that structure um, where I needed it, but at the same time, have just leaned into the things that I love about being a a father and husband. How, have you have you struggled at all with creating like um like you go into the office and you know okay I got an eight hour day and here's all the shit that I got to do and I got to put together this warrant <clears throat> and I got to do this and I got to yeah. find out intel here like. Have you struggled to create a resemblance of not like that particular structure, but a structure for yourself since you've started to transition? Because I know that was one of one of my things because I didn't realize it. My brain didn't connect immediately saying like, hey, bro, you get to define what your eight hours looks like. You get to define what your right. day looks like. Have you have you struggled with that at all? Because it was written for you for 15 years. Right. Yeah. And, and I think for me, like I was, I was a very independent operator to begin with. So, um, I've always been self-motivated. I've been the kind of guy that like my, my local management has just, you know, you assign him the case and just, you know, just leave him alone and he's going to take care of it. And so yeah. I transitioned well into that. Um, it wasn't, you know, quite as structured for me. It wasn't like, Hey, where are you? What are you doing? Where, where are you going to be? People by and large trusted me to, to get my job done and to bring home the results. But, um, where it's been a bit of a struggle for me is, you know, filling the hours and like, you know, like there was always a Zoom call, a Teams meeting, something going on. Uh, and oh, yeah. for me, like I was passionate about the job and loved the job. So kids would go to bed and I'd be like back on my laptop. I'm like, man, I can I can knock out another report or I can you know run a couple more queries. I can I can run this lead down. Um, I can talk to a victim. I can do whatever. And so it's the, the struggle for me is the blank space. It's the mm. um, you know, it's now what and, and filling that time. And, and so they say busy, you know, like if you if you ever met anyone who was like in college or whatever, who was like a high performer, like Dean's List student, like they were busy people. They're probably involved in clubs. They're in a fraternity, a sorority, whatever. They were the kind of people that like they didn't have a lot of free time. So they became high performers by not having free time. And, mm -hmm. and that's how I've approached life until this point. So having the free time is uh, it's a foreign concept to me. And it's it's been a bit of a struggle to, to wrap my arms around. Yeah, brother. I trust me. I know that one, man. And um, I mean, I still, I'm still working for the government, but when I've started to find my days a little more, when I have that dead space, I'm like, there's always something I could be doing, but then it's like also find reminding yourself that there's that calmness that you're entitled to as well. You know, that peace. For sure. For sure. Yeah. 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 Well, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about too is, uh, and you and I kind of jammed out about this before the episode, but I'd love for you to share a little bit about the the biggest case that you had that is now actually going to be in the public eye pretty soon. Yeah. Um, because I think it's really interesting for people to hear you like a little bit, a taste of it. Cause I know it's a long, I know it's a, it's an in-depth process and story, <laughs> yeah. but I, I think it's really cool for people to hear a little bit of a taste of what goes on for people like yourself who are doing really good work for our country and, and doing things that actually are protecting, um, you know, the constituents of, of this country. Yeah, man. Um, so like, I'll start from the start with this one. Um, so, uh, it's, it's kind of some background you alluded to. Um, I worked on this, this one particular investigation It started when I was, um, 
boy, it would have been like 2013. So I was working down the Rio Grande Valley at the time still. And um, I was the duty agent. I was just kind of like the guy who that week was catching all the incoming. And we started getting these complaints from people who are foreign nationals um, living in the U.S. on H-1B visas that were claiming that they were getting telephone calls from the Department of Homeland Security and that they were getting threatened with deportation if they didn't pay fines. And so um, I started looking into it and what we, what eventually turned into a, like a six-year-long investigation where we indicted over 60 people. Um, what we found out was this was an international um, telefraud network based in India, and they were calling Americans, uh, foreign nationals living in the U.S., uh, just about anybody, just dialing for dollars, and they were impersonating the Department of Homeland Security. They were impersonating the IRS. They were impersonating Social Security. They were impersonating USCIS. So if you ever got a call circa 2013 <laughs> to 2016 from somebody who claimed to be the IRS, that's the network that I uh, that I took down, that my team took down. And, and, and we actually, uh, over the course of three years of investigating, um, identified about 30 people in the United States who were part of that network. Um, we chased down uh, the head of the network, the the kind of the godfather of it. Um, I, I actually flew all the way to Singapore to, to arrest and extradite him back to the U.S. Um, uh-huh. And he's doing 20 years now for his role. Um, so we ended up getting, at the end of this thing, about 200 and I think it was 211 years of total uh, jail time for the the people that we arrested that were involved in that. They stole over three hundred million dollars from from U.S. citizens. Wow. Um, but over overall, we indicted sixty one people and businesses uh, for their roles in the conspiracy. Um, and yeah, so for me, like that was a huge passion project. Like when I found out what was going mm-hmm. on, I kind of teamed up with some other agents around the country who were who were kind of nibbling around the edges of it. And and what people typically don't understand is that federal law enforcement is um, even though we, we cover the entire country, you typically work within a region. You work within a an area of responsibility. Yeah. So for me, that was Texas. And there were guys in California and, and other places who had victims. And so as we started to kind of deconflict and like realize we were looking into the same organization, we kind of pooled our resources and worked with the Department of Justice. And uh, yeah, we ended up over three years of working, you know, 16, 18 hour days, just like flying off to chicago to do surveillance for a week flying off to san diego to debrief some guy like i mean i put airline miles i I was a diamond double plus whatever hilton guy for like (laughs) i I, like i didn't pay for a hotel room for like the next three years like i was just like constantly on the road and um and at the end of it, it you know all the work and all the effort that we put into it was worth it because on i think it was like october of 2016 we did a nationwide sweep and my team arrested you know over 20 people in the US in eight different states all at the same time mm. coordinated it and uh, and brought these guys to justice and um, yeah, it's going to be a really cool story. It comes out, um, I think, June 15th, the first episode drops, and it's uh, produced by Campside Media, and uh, I think Sony is backing it financially, and uh, and so it should be a really good, if you like true crime podcasts, it's going to tell the entire story from, from top to bottom about how my team um, identified these guys, brought them in, and uh, I think it's going to be a really cool podcast because I think... Um, the host is is talking to some of the guys that we arrested and i think he's been to india and talked to some of the people over there so um, i haven't heard any of it i only know my part of it and uh, and i'm I'm super stoked to hear it that's so cool but it gives us i think it gives great insight to people to understand what it likes to be looking at something that is so big that it can create your identity for you 
And so what, what I actually hear from this too, and I'd love to have you share is that, you know, what was that like not allowing that to impact your family as a, as a man, as a man of the household, what was that like? And, and how, did that really conflict with you internally? Did that, did that find you in some dark places when you were trying to keep that separation? Yeah. So, um, I mean, at the time when I first started the case, it was just my wife and I, and we, we, we joked um, that this investigation lasted so long that the agents who were involved in it, I forget the exact number, but there was like, there were like five transfers. Um, so people moving from one office to another, uh, because that, that happens in the government, you move from office to office. And there were like 12 kids born over the course of this investigation mm, among, wow. uh, among the, the, the investigators. So there's a huge impact and there's actually a, a, a kind of a brotherhood that's, that's, that develops between the, the guys that I worked on this with, because we got to know one another's families and one another's children's. And there's almost mm. like, you know, my wife and my, you know, my partner's wives, like got to know one another because it was like a support system. Cause we were on the road all the time. And they, they leaned on each other. Um, but yeah, there was definitely impact there. Like there were times when, um, you know, when I was living in, in San Antonio and I would, you know, hop in the car on, on Monday and I would drive to Houston and I would be in Houston until Thursday night and I would drive home uh, and then do it again week after week after week because we had to interview all these guys and they were all being detained in Houston and we had to, you know, go to court and do all these things. And at the time I was a new father. Um, you know, we had just adopted our first daughter and brought her home and it weighed on me heavily. You know, the fact mm. that I was gone three, four nights out of the week and, and my wife's trying to run a business and, and, you know, and raise our daughter and deal with all those things on her own was, was it, terribly weighing. Um, you know, and I was fortunate in that I was, you know, two, three hours away and I could hop in a car and drive back if I needed to. But, um, I mean, I saw the impact on some of the other guys as well that, that, you know, you, you have to you have to dig in and you kind of have to put some blinders on to to what's going on at home to be able to effectively do that job but it's not without consequence mm -hmm. yeah it's such a hard thing to do and to separate it and not allow it to affect the way you show up for your wife and your kids for sure. like that's for sure that's one of the biggest things it's like how, how do you not allow yourself to show up fucked up for them right uh, because you're being impacted by something that is so big that you were involved in and I think that it's really special that you're able to kind of look and see that, but then also kind of get lend insight to guys. So one of the other questions I have for you, because of the fact that you, you are such a great father, you guys adopted um, two children from, yep. from China, correct? We did. Yeah. Both, both our girls are from China. Right. And, and that process um, is arduous in and of itself. It's not, it's not fun in the sense of like, it, no. it is a process to get that, to have, have that happen. But what is it that you do now that you can give guys that allows you to show? Well, let me do two things. One, what is it that you did then to show up well for your wife and your kids, especially with the adoption and everything else? And then I'll ask you the second question afterwards. Yeah, yeah. Um, so when we decided to adopt, um, we knew, uh, you know, people call it being paper pregnant. Like you're not, you know, you're not carrying a child full term, but you're going to be in for, you know, nine to 18 months, depending on how efficient you are of paperwork and, you know, frustration because you're dealing with not just one, you know, government agency, you're dealing with a government agency here in the U.S. and you're dealing with a, uh, actually you're dealing with two government agencies in the U.S., you're dealing with a adoption agency, and then you're dealing with the Chinese government as well. So it's, it's incredibly frustrating. And so for me, um, 
you know, just trying to hold space for her the best that I could, um, having that, um, ability to recognize when, you know, the frustrations that she was feeling and the things that were going through her mind, um, you know, panicking about getting this needs to get to FedEx today because we have got to get this out or it could cause a two week delay in us getting to our little girl. And just knowing mm -hmm. that she was in a foster setting, she didn't have a mom and dad mm -hmm. there. She was waiting for us a half a world away and any trip up or screw up on our part um, potentially kept her in that situation longer. And, and and we, we wanted to get to her as quick as we could. So we moved lightning fast on both of our adoptions. And on our second adoption, um, it's incredible. Like we felt really, um, we felt really called to this little girl. Um, my, and we adopted out of birth order. So my, my second adoption is, is slightly older than our first adoption, but we felt this tremendous calling, like God was directing us to this little girl. And we worked our tails off to get to her um, and managed to do it in like record time. It took us like seven months, seven and a half months to get everything done and get to her. And we were able to get to her and bring her home in October of 2019. And if you're, you know, if you, if you haven't been living under a rock for the last two years, you know what happened shortly thereafter or was actually happening in China at that time um, was that there was a pandemic. Really? There was happening. something going on? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so, um, you know, we were in Changsha, China, and we were in, you know, in, in um, Guangzhou. And it was, I, I mean, it was like we were one of the last families to like leave in 2019 before um everything shut down and they haven't mm. there hasn't been an adoption since so if we hadn't worked as hard as we did if we hadn't you know supported one another through the process and been there for one another through the process we would not have gotten her home she'd still be sitting there um in china she'd still be there mm. without without anyone uh, to care for her and so yeah i think yeah, there's a lot of frustration going through that process there's a lot of um moments where you're just like you feel defeated and you're just like you just want to scream at somebody and um you know and i was very fortunate in that working for dhs i didn't pull any strings or do anything that was outside of outside of my scope but i had contacts and new people uh, within cis that i could call and say hey um can you check on the status on this for me and just i want to make sure that we're in a good spot mm. um and, and so i was able to kind of like provide a little bit of comfort to her by you know by reassuring her that we're good it's just it's sitting on this person's desk and now they know that we're asking about it and we're good and yeah you know, so uh, mm. but yeah i mean you want to, you want to test your marriage go through an adoption <laughs> like, you know. oh my god i'll have to give you a call when taylor and i do it because we're going to be adopting uh from ghana at some point and i'll for have to sure. give, give you a call <laughs> yeah no for sure that is that is yeah well, one of the things I also wanted to ask before we start to wrap up here is because I know you and your wife have, have so you guys have a really beautiful marriage. Uh, you and I have talked about this. Um, I've talked with your wife and you guys have this really cool, amazing marriage because you guys have had to deal with a lot of hardships with the girls and everything that whole process entailed. Um, what is something that you can give to guys right now that are in a position just in, in, with their family, maybe that you can give them uh, some support in how you guys approach your marriage and approach the issues that come up. I think both of us, um, what's, what's, what's kind of strange about our marriage. That's, that's maybe, um, you know, different than some people is we choose, we've chosen the hard road a lot of the times intentionally. And so we've had these, these challenging situations that we've taken on together and that we've undertaken, um, you know, with, 
with these kind of like big audacious goals in mind. So it, it, it really builds an us against the world sort of attitude. Um, we are both Ironman triathletes. We've both done six Ironmans and we've trained together and raced wow. together. Uh, we've done ultra marathons together and long distance racing. We've built a business together. Um, you know, we've, dope. we've, we've adopted two children internationally together. So I guess, I guess my, my, um, if you want a stronger marriage, if you want to test your metal, um, find a big gnarly goal, do hard, and shit. Do hard <laughs> shit with your, with your wife, you know, I mean, like, do hard shit like convince her to do it too like we we did a bodybuilding show that. together i mean we did a bunch of these like big kind of like gnarly goals together that we thought were um like super important for us to you know to accomplish before we had kids and i think that actually prepared yeah. us for the hardships of having kids because we if you've done six ironman triathlons and you know a couple of ultra marathons with somebody like there, there's nothing about that person that can you know there's no amount of like swearing or cursing or anger that's going to surprise you because you've seen the worst of them I promise you that uh, yeah. at some point along the road. And so, yeah, it definitely, I, I, I would definitely encourage guys to like be more involved in, in the big hard decisions in life and be a partner to your wife and be passionate about what, what her mm. big choices are um, and look for ways that you can be, cause we have a very different relationship. She's, she's much more, you know, if you get into the Myers-Briggs stuff, like I'm an I ISTJ mm -hmm. generally, I'm, I'm much more the accountant personality. She's much more the, you know, she's got the, you know, the big following on Instagram. She's got, you know, she's the face of our business that really like draws in clients and, and, and she was, you know, the performer and the, you know, all of that stuff. So for her, um, it's a very, it's a very face forward sort of way to live and me it's different. And, and we're a yin and yang that way. So look for the ways that you can complement each other too along the way. Mm, so good, brother. So good. Well, man, you and I could talk a long time. We'll have to have you back on the show because I truly enjoy our conversations. Yeah, um, for real. And as we wrap up, as we wrap up, brother, I just want you to let everybody know what you got going on, how they can come, become part of your ecosystem. Uh, you got some cool shit on the horizon. So let them know what's coming out um, in the future too, so they can keep track of you. For real. No, I appreciate you having me and I, I've, I've really enjoyed it. Looking forward to, to wild man in a couple of weeks and seeing you in person again. Um, if you want to catch up with me, I'm on, I'm on Instagram at team underscore Healy, H E A L E Y. And, uh, I've, I've got some stuff going on there. There's a link tree where you can figure out how to work with me, how to connect with me. I do coaching. I do one-on-one uh, -on -one fitness, nutrition training. And, uh, and I try to work with men to become indispensable to their families and become the first, first responder to their family. So, uh, come check me out if that's, if, if that appeals to you. Yeah, guys, please. He's got such a vast knowledge of experience, but also he's a, he's a stoic in his own right. He is a philosopher. I, I watch his posts. I read them. Uh, just an amazing human being. And, and so many men can learn from you. So any guys that's interested, uh, please check out Chris's bio. Make sure you guys um check out the show notes you can find the links in there as i have nothing but the utmost respect for and as a man um, even up until this point man so i appreciate you so much brother i can't wait to see you too and your last question before you go is what does the art of masculinity mean to you i mean art is an expression of ourselves right so um to me it's it's you know an expression of how you show up for your family how you show up for your wife um and and i'll circle back to service it's how you serve um so for me masculinity is is all about how i show up and serve and whether that's uh, my community uh, my country or my wife and kids um it's it's important for me to show up as a man and, and serve
Mm, I love that, brother. Oh, well, thank you, man. I appreciate you. And to everybody listening, as always, remember to drop the ego and stay humble. Until next time.